I'm Max Barnett, Commercial Strategy Lead at Delta Trey. And I'm David Kushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. And this is The Blueprint, the podcast for straightforward strategic thinking in sport. Over the course of this series, brought to you by Delta Trey and Leaders, we'll be exploring how to build and execute great strategy and how to avoid doing strategy badly. We'll hear from some of sport's leading strategists about how they think, plan and execute strategy with flexibility, bringing projects or partnerships to life and injecting creativity. And we'll take you inside some of sport's most recognisable organisations for real life examples of where strategy worked and sometimes where it didn't. Welcome to The Blueprint. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the tech and innovation stage. Uh, my name's David Kushner. I'll be guiding you through this uh, final session of the day here on this stage. And uh, my goodness, it's a popular one. Uh, right, time for uh, a live edition of The Blueprint, uh, which is our podcast series that Leaders has been running alongside our friends at Delta Tray over the past year or so, exploring and dissecting strategic thinking in sport. And we have a superb pair of guests from the top table of European football, no less, to help us examine that topic once again right now. So please do welcome to the stage the Chief Marketing Officer of Juventus, uh, Mike Armstrong, and the Commercial Director of Venue and E-Commerce at Manchester United, Patrick Jenkinson. And as you give them a warm welcome, please do the same for Delta Trade's Commercial Strategy Lead and my co-host and on the blueprint, Max Barnett. Please welcome them all to the stage. Welcome, gentlemen. It's good to see you. Max, it's good to see you with a live audience this I know. Time. Audio yeah. and visual today. All the podcast listeners have come out to uh, watch this one. Um, and Patrick and Mike, it's great to have you with us. As you know, The Blueprint is a conversation about strategic thinking in sport. Let's start with the obvious and most simple question. Your definition of strategy. Mike, let's get the view from Turin first. <laughs> yeah, for me, uh, I guess the Mike Armstrong uh, dictionary definition would be uh, navigating uncertainty, making selective choices, and uh, coming to a measurable victory, underlining measurable. Underlining, bit of formatting on, the, on the definition. I like that. <laughs> uh, Patrick, give us your definition. I think mine would be having a plan understanding why you want to execute that plan, an articulation of how you're going to execute that plan, and some measure of your goals or what you view as success. And I think wrapped around all of that, I think it's what's your plan to bring people along with you on the journey and the people that you need to get buy-in from it. And I think companies throughout who've always had that clear definition of what they want to be and how they want to execute, whether that's been Google over the last 25 years, Netflix as a disruptor, EasyJet in the early 2010s, or even Aldi and Lidl in the supermarkets. Those companies have done that effectively, have always come out on top during that, those periods. We're going to delve into uh, lots of those strands over the course of this conversation. Um, but 
one thing that strikes me just looking at your respective job titles is neither of them actually has the word strategy in them and we've we've seen and there will be maybe some in the room people with uh, an increasing number of people in the industry with strategy in their job title and yet and tell us your roles are sort of absolutely informed by and thinking about strategy and how that comes to life uh, mike tell us a little bit about as a as a cmo how and where that fits for you in, in Juventus's hierarchy? Yeah, I mean, I think within the company, the CMO's job is often to look at both audience development as well as uh, monetization. And so you need to be in lockstep with the overall company on how to build a long-term vision to achieve both of those primary objectives. And Patrick, I would say, I'm going to say it, the most intriguing job title of the day here at Leaders Week, uh, because it's two things that I wouldn't necessarily put together in a single job title, venue and e-commerce, but tell us why it makes sense. Absolutely, and I think often when I speak to people, I see this sort of puzzled look they give me of what is the link between those units, and the link between venue and e-commerce is quite simple, it's fans. So my role at Manchester United is, is across B2C and driving B2C revenues for the club, and that's primarily using uh, utilizing our digital footprint and using technology and layering it on data. And then in the context of strategies you're talking about, you know, B2C businesses typically are ones that you build over time. They're not overnight successes. So strategic thinking is really, really important as we approach it. And, and both of you uh, have spent time outside of the sports and entertainment industry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about building strategy, executing strategy within the sports and entertainment industry and what makes it unique? What are some of the unique challenges or opportunities in doing that in sport? Maybe start with you, Patrick. I think uh, performance obviously affects things and, and sentiment uh, can affect within a year. However, strategy by definition is more medium to long term. And I think actually that, that fact means it's much more important. And I think there's just got to be an acceptance from yourselves and leadership that progress won't necessarily be linear. Mm. And then I think a second one is obviously you know, fandom and, and popularity. 95% of us in this room, the reason we're in this industry is we love it, the, the passion of the fans and that fandom. And I think that is something that's a really important dynamic. And actually, as a club, we've really thought about now in the last few years how we can really use that and, and harness that. We've got our fans forum. We've got our fans advisory group. Um, we launched our fan engagement plan. And we really... we've had a concerted strategy to really re-engage with our fans and put them in the heart of decision-making. So we have our fan engagement team. And whenever we're strategizing on some initiatives, and you and I have worked on a project you know, recently, it's, that's a really core input and mm. to get their lens on things and how we need to be approaching things. I think a really simple example, a recent one of an output for us is um, we made the decision and start from next season to remove hospitality from the Stratford end for us. And that was, again, something that our fans came to us with um, as a group. And we discussed it and we appraised it and we listened to them and it was an action we made. So that's where I think it's a particular dynamic that we should actually be using and leveraging more. Mm. There's no greater group of people in number or who care about our, our business. And we should definitely be listening to them and talking to them for ideas. And Mike, your background, you spent time at Google and in eSports. What, what makes building and executing strategy at Juventus different from those types of organizations or industries? Yeah, I mean, piggybacking off of what Patrick said, I think coming from packaged goods to uh, Google to football, underlining the, um, the uncertainty aspect. I mean, if you work for a club, uh, 
from year to year, the what someone would define as the core product can change quite dramatically. And so um, from one season to the next, you can see based on relegation or qualification or th things out of your control to do with players, all of a sudden the um, the the core to what you're you're offering can change quite a bit, mm. and so this uh, this uncertainty that is uh, embedded into uh, working uh, for a club is 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 real, and you have to be a, a bit of a, a glutton for punishment <laughs> to be uh, okay with that, because sometimes you can build a strategy and uh, you have to you have to pivot. Ideally, you're building long term, and so you're not pivoting major bedrock strategies. But sometimes there's a necessity to do so. Um, if I were to make a maybe a more pointed example. I mean, I could jump to my past life. Uh, we're near the end of the day. Maybe I, I pick on you, David. You're a beer drinker. Uh, well, we'll find out in <laughs> Perfect. approximately what, 23 you, minutes. You have a favorite beer? Uh, I do. What is it? Well, if I... Oh, I see is there a sponsor conflict crap. here? <laughs> even as you're saying that, I'm mentally just trying to make no, a no. note to see if there is. I don't think there is. I'll, I'll say Peroni. How about okay, that? Peroni. <laughs> okay. So, I mean... Coming from where I came from, it's it's like uh, David is the CRO or the CMO of Peroni worldwide, and he has a team that's working on, within a brewery perspective, making sure that the the product, the ingredients, the recipes, everything is consistent all the time around the world. Um, and let's say uh, Max is your biggest is a biggest fan. He's a huge Peroni drinker. Max that's is actually very accurate. As Max well. has had a <laughs> probably. Max has had like a horrible day at the office, probably because of Patrick. Uh, and, uh, and and Max opens his fridge and he cracks open the bottle of Peroni and he takes his first sip and it tastes like a Corona. I mean, and then he opens it maybe a month from now and it tastes like uh, London Pride. I mean, this is an extreme example, but if you work for a football club, the, the core product for some's definition can change mm. quite a bit. And so for me, this is maybe a, a, a too bold of an example to make, but a pointed example to, um, to make the point. I feel like we're in a slightly weird role play, but it kind of worked. It kind of, it did make I mean, the point. It was least, effective. At least now everybody knows to buy you a Peroni well, at the it. end of the day. That's yeah. it. That's it. We don't charge for drinks here, Mike. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> um, we've already mentioned a number of organizations outside of the sports industry. And I wonder, as you're sort of thinking in your own roles about strategy, and, and I suppose as your organizations are thinking about strategy, where are you looking? Is it other clubs? Is it other sports organizations of any sort? Is it the Googles of the world? Where, how, what are you sort of looking for? And is that, is that a search for strategic frameworks on a sort of slightly academic level? Or is it, is it something more tangible that you're seeking as inspiration or as something that can inform what you're doing? I'm happy to go first. I mean, for me, uh, I look to um, the, I'd say, the NBA, who's often used uh, from a league perspective, mainly two things stand out for me. One is there's at least a, a feeling that they're planning long-term. If I look at the audience development uh, decades ago and the work they did from a China perspective, more recently in Africa, Mexico, I mean, it seems like there's a long-term approach and they don't seem to be able to maybe they're not trying to go too fast. And so, uh, at least from an outsider, I see them thinking long-term, but then on the flip side, moving quite quick on innovation, taking advantage of NBA top shot, getting in uh, to something quite quickly. And so the way they're able to balance 
long-term planning and then taking advantage of short-term opportunities I quite like. When I want to get out of my comfort zone, uh, I go maybe more to like what Dan Porter is doing with overtime, uh, the um, the Kings League. Um, I, I find the the way they're tackling audience and the evolving media landscape is quite interesting within uh, those two players as examples. Patrick? I think actually for mine are a bit different examples of picking on Mike's point around the NBA. I think actually I talk about US teams. I think part of the reason they're able to be quite adaptive and innovative like that is they have a really deep bank of insights and understanding. So definitely, and I love this question because I love looking around within sport and then outside of sports. I think the US teams do fantastically. Within my own career, I've had really direct experience with the San Francisco 49ers. And I think you know what they built and how they think about experience and continually innovating that experience, using a lot of data and asking themselves, no matter who my fan is, what kind of experience do they want? And a mantra that you know I'm using at Manchester United is, we should have something for our fans, no matter what the ticket or touch point. People want different things out of the same day, and we should understand that. So I, I really like that. But then beyond sports, where I, you know, I really like looking, and I think where people have to work for audiences really hard, one thing uh, that I do really great is um, is Merlin Entertainments. Merlin Entertainments, they run Madame Two Swords, Peppa Pig, Legoland, The London Eye. They've always had a really clear strategy and focus. They know who their audience are, families and, and family groups, days out, special experiences. And they're a really good example of, of a business that have used IP to build a fantastically loyal audience that comes back year after year after year. And they really have a thread of customer centricity through everything and really knowing who they are, who they're trying to appeal to, and how they can do that. So I, I think they're a great example. I, th I think on built, picking up on a couple of your points, especially around the US leagues, I think it's important on this side of the pond to not be too hard on ourselves, especially around strategic thinking, because the leagues have that inherent advantage of, okay, we're going to look ahead on behalf of our clubs, our members, we're going to put together a strategy and have your buy-in and then try and lead from the front. If you look at the way NBA or the NFL have done that, I think that's they're playing to their advantage of being the sort of league and franchise model. But when you're, you know, you, you're both two very successful football teams, as you said at the beginning, what makes, unique, what, what makes uh, football unique, sport unique, is that the, the rhythms of the season, right? The, are we going to get three points this, this, um, this weekend? How do you decouple... Uh, from on-pitch performance and sort of think ahead. And, and maybe we could talk about what we've been talking about, you know, both of us um, for, for a few few years now, that sort of director-consumer opportunity. How do you decouple? How do you go about building that strategy? Maybe, Patrick, we start with you. Great. I mean, I think it starts with the clarity from leadership. Mm. Uh, and obviously, I'm very grateful for at Manchester United, we've got that clarity of direction and that mm. leadership in that trust and building that over the long term. So, and again, to, to what I said previously, that understanding that the rhythms of the season, be it quantitative matches or things that happen, shouldn't get in the way. And, and part of, you know, building a B2C business, it will take us, you know, we, we make great strides in the past mm. 12, 18 months, but it's a probably a five to six year process mm. because you need to explain to people, articulate what your strategy is, understand the investment profile of it, probably try some things, occasionally get some things wrong. And I think having that support of leadership is super important. So we, you know, some of the projects we've been talking about have 
the ultimate goal for B2C is how do you unify an ecosystem? Mm. Not having seven, eight, nine different products. It's a single fan. The best way to cater to that fan and serve that fan is going to be to unite things and give them an optimal experience, which is consistent across your products. So I think you need to have the strategy, but having the support of leadership in executing that strategy, you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Mike, similar story for you, Bay, or yeah, I think you you can't get stuck in the rhythms of the season. So for us, we build the three-year plan, and then we have checkpoints uh, once a year, which is probably not something that's uh, uh, strange or unheard of. Um, I think on the the direct-to-consumer side, where that can help you is how you execute and smooth out some of the rhythms. Mm. Maybe you can uh, by knowing the fans uh, in a more intimate way. Um, speak to them in a way that detaches yourself from performance on the pitch, like give them the right message so that when you have those rhythms, you know what to say and when to say it. Mm. And so for us, we're, um, we're big believers that we need to continue to improve the, the depth of fan intelligence that we have so that again, we can put them at the center and give the right message and experience throughout the, the ups and downs of the rhythms. We've always found on the Delta Trade perspective, you can sometimes with B2C or D2C or those digital platforms that enable what you've just been saying, Patrick, you can get sometimes tripped up in features, functionality, what the product does. Where we've found the most sort of effective conversations is with leadership, with ownership, with investors in almost translating what D2C can enable in terms of business growth. So getting it back to cents, euros, dollars, pounds. Um, and really articulating what DTC can do from moving your revenue to from X to Y um, and how you re diversify revenue. Is that similar sorts of language that you're using uh, to kind of when you're having those conversations with leadership or? Yeah, and I, the language I use is often I think that revenue is the output, it's not the driver. Mm. If in, in B2C, like, like in any brand really, if you build products and experiences that resonate with your audience because you've understood your audience or you've spoken to your audience and then you make it a nice experience, then they'll consume those experiences or those products and they'll enjoy that and that's exactly what they want to do. So that's the way I talk about it internally about that that should be our goal and, and our utopia and, and then the revenue follows off the back of it. And so the examples that you're talking about, things like the technology in that point is the enabler, right? How do I give my fan who's in Saudi Arabia the same e-commerce experience as my fan who's in England? Mm. That should be my goal and a complete principle of equivalence around it. Yeah. And to, to deliver on the opportunity, you know, it takes a village. It requires multiple teams, different units, different functions to get involved. Mike, from your experience, how you know, your CMO, so you have but quite a broad remit right, within marketing, but how do you work with other units within Juve and collaborate around a strategy like D2C or you know, multiple strategies that different units have? How do you, how do you work from that perspective? Yeah, I think the, the best example I've got um, is probably our, our summer tours. And so Juventus uh, takes uh, a very uh, important uh, 
week to a 10 day break where we can get out of market and it's a wonderful opportunity from a marketer perspective you've got to make the most out of those days but at the same time you have to balance the strategies needed from uh, and the objectives needed from the sports area so i mean in terms of quality of pitch uh, hotel you stay at uh, giving young players an opportunity to to grow and and test them out you've got a the media team that's looking at balancing, I mean, revenue and reach. You've got um, the other teams that you're perhaps uh, playing friendlies with. And so I'd say Summer Tours is a good example that brings in the total company. Uh, and that's often where you have competing objectives. And so you need to really uh, work on speaking to people on a human level, understanding their objectives and figuring out how you can make sure that there's some, some more overarching themes that everybody can ladder into. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting picking up on that that human interaction, right, from other podcasts David and I have had, especially the last few, if you think about it, David, like the importance of you can have a great strategy deck, but it's in order to execute, it is people. It's about working and understanding shared objectives and getting on with it. Yeah, being humble and achieving buy-in. I mean, it's a human psychology. I think sometimes it's such a simple thing that gets uh, forgotten along the way. Uh, understanding that people have different objectives and that's okay uh, yeah. but um, figuring out how you uh, come to a resolution yeah. yeah I think exactly for us I think sometimes that people are surprised and for us we we really do involve so many teams across the club mm. sometimes maybe you go a bit slower and you need to compromise on sometimes some things that you want to do but actually it means that people feel invested and involved in the process they're often actually chipping in ideas things that you hadn't thought about and it doesn't mean you get a long way down and then someone suddenly has an objection or something so we've had a real real emphasis on collaboration bringing a wide breadth of people to the table on projects it's been a real inter focus for us the last yeah. couple of years that certainly came across when we were working together the <laughs> breadth of um teams involved which as you everyone. said yeah yeah exactly exactly receptionist front desk exactly that <laughs> Let's talk about uh, when strategies don't work so well, because that's, that's a reality for everybody in this room, I'm sure. Can you point to maybe an example or two of where strategy has fallen down, and can you pinpoint the reasons why? Yeah, I think uh, there's a few reasons. I mean, one, sometimes it's readiness. Sometimes you get too far ahead of yourselves, and either your team, uh, the resourcing, whether it's financial or people, just, just aren't there. And so you build a strategy and you can't execute because you're not ready. Uh, other times it's a political will or governance within the company that make it difficult. Uh, and sometimes it's just uh, the measurability is, is wrong from the beginning. And so you don't get uh, the right people aligned on like what is the, the output at the end. How are we going to measure it at the start and how are we going to measure it at the finish uh, to make sure that we achieve the, the goal that we want? Yeah, I'll pull an example from a past life, uh, possibly. I think I, I agree. I think the key reason that happens and where you need to be, you need to be nimble and adaptable. I really like some of the readings about Seth Godin and he talks about sunk costs. Don't let the time and effort you spent on something yesterday impact your decision today. And, and that's very hard to do in practice to accept that everything you've done, the investment might not be the right approach. So, you know, I, I definitely can think of, of examples of past life where we, you know, gone after big plays and strategies that haven't panned out. And then when we, we haven't been brave enough to look and reassess at the market and go, you know, maybe the market changed or some realities think changed or things we just didn't think of. And, and I think the key then 
is to be nimble and adaptable and humble about it. Yeah, we've, we've found that actually recently, just bringing up a perspective from Delta Stray, like we've, in, we've introduced scorecards around how we measure opportunities and doing the post-mortem and pre-mortem. And just being honest, but Mike, to your point, b being clear on consistent measurement to, to do that. Um, Patrick, you know, from a measurement perspective, how do you at United think about measurement of execution of strategy? Different teams have different goals. We have overall club objectives and club goals um, within mind, you know, from a B2C perspective, it's very much, you know, about engagement and about, you know, people, people are interactive and, and monetization. I'm, I'm the commercial director. But what we do actually is I understand different groups goals and KPIs mm. and, and that's I think an important distinction and something that we've done so even when I'm executing around things I, I know how and where it's impacting say you know our strategic priorities around women's football right what, what am I doing on, on e-commerce or on retail that is growing that audience and you know investing in that audience to, to grow that as part of those pillars so we all have our own goals and KPIs and they'd be quite different but we all given visibility on them at leadership level and down so that we understand and so we can think about helping each other. And Patrick, how does that extend sort of beyond the organization of Manchester United when you're thinking about all the other stakeholder groups, whether it's partners, we talked about fans as a key group. How does that, because there are certain elements of any strategic project, I would imagine, that absolutely have an impact or can be influenced by any of those those key stakeholder groups. How have you experienced how that works in practice? Partners are hugely important to Manchester United. So definitely, again, in terms of key stakeholders, they form a part of key stakeholders. And we, you know, we benefit so much from them in terms of their experience, their understanding, experiences that they enable to, to unlock, their expertise, right? They, we, we benefit so much from them. So they are one of of our really, really important st stakeholders across any decisions that we make. And again, it's in terms of lens, we look at fans, we look at partners, and then we look at other stakeholders. So I think they're just a, a really, really important stakeholder group that we really, really value. We, we get a lot of benefit from them working closely and collaborating with them. So that they're, they're a core part of how we think and how we execute overall club strategy. I would assume that would chime with you, Mike, in terms of collaboration, communication with the the wider family, if I can use that phrase. Yeah, and from a measurement perspective, I'd say, I mean, some, are, some objectives are just easier. I mean, you've got data metrics, you've got revenue metrics, these ones are easier. The ones where we've struggled in the past and where uh, research and uh, understanding our audience better has helped a lot is on audience development and brand, specifically equity. Mm. And so, I mean, we've invested uh, quite a bit into audience segmentation, into brand distinction studies, into uh, mapping out how we can grow in other markets and then how we measure against those. And so if you don't have those in place, then brand is a thing that you talk about, but you can't really move the needle on it. And so it's important that um, I find sports teams look at uh, really how you measure brand and equity like uh, consumer packaged goods companies. Yeah. And partners really understand that, right? Because a lot of them are you know, huge, sophisticated global brands and, and they really understand that and it resonates. Um, Mike, sorry, why is that important, right? You come from... Uh, FMCG background, you've been used to dedicating a large portion of budget to brand measurement, investment in brand. Why is, why is that important uh, for, for sport, for football? 
I think in some ways it comes back to my comment, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but being on a, a, glut, a glutton for punishment. Yeah. Uh, because if you're the CMO at a, at a football club, I mean, you can't touch the performance on the pitch. And so in some ways you need to um, encourage your, your fans to fall in love with the brand um, and separate that from the pitch. And so if you're not working on brand and brand equity, then you're in a self-fulfilling prophecy of making the football club stand for performance on the pitch. Okay, and you're at the whim of what's happening there. Absolutely. And, and with that unlock of budget, what are some of the big things, you know, for some of the sports properties that might be in the, in the audience and thinking about brand and getting investment to invest in brand? Like, what are the tangible outputs of you invest in brand and then get, and get what? It's difficult because sometimes the business is very um, short-term looking and mm. brand is, uh, is long-term. And so it's a difficult conversation to have. I mean, if you look at big brands globally, they spend uh, 10 to 20% of revenue on brand, on brand equity. Uh, I would love to know what uh, football clubs in general spend on brand equity. And I would guess it's nowhere close to that. So I think um, there's a, a dilemma that sports teams have on um, wanting to build brand, but perhaps not putting the investment there because there's a short-termism that's uh, really uh, foundational and rooted in the industry. Yeah. And Needing money now. Yeah. And do you think there's a, not putting words on either of your mouths, but do you think that's a potential blind spot? Because if somebody says you need to invest in your brand, football club or rugby club or cricket club or whatever, X, they, they tell me, oh, I know what my brand's about. Everyone knows my brand. I, I mean, the thing is, is, I mean, we did a study soon after I joined the company. And um, I mean, we, we looked at uh, European football brands. And again, the audience development is different across all of us. But if you ask fans across Europe, there's not a whole lot of difference that mm. fans see between teams. Uh, they see the color difference. They see a community difference. But in terms of imagery attributes, there's not a whole lot of differentiation, which tells me that there's a big opportunity for football clubs to continue to build uh, brand equity. Yeah. And fat, we did a, uh, a study earlier this or last year with um, the BBL. And we did that brand study. So it's not just a, uh, a UA for, uh, sorry, a UA or, or Manchester United, right? It's sports properties of all shapes and sizes should be investing in this, it feels like, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, as, the, as the CMO of Peroni, which I think was the role you gave me earlier, I would absolutely uh, advocate everything that's just been said. Um, we are very shortly out of time, but we always like to conclude uh, these conversations uh, thinking through and talking about strategic thinking in sport uh, with a recommendation or two about great books on strategy. I think we've extended it out to podcasts, uh, you know, to show a sort of hip and cool. Uh, so, Mike, Patrick, I don't know if you've got a, a recommendation or something you would point our audience towards. Yeah, uh, a few books, I guess, on general strategy. I mean, uh, Blue Ocean Strategy is a, a foundational one that a lot of people talk about. Uh, recently, I read, um, it's called CEO Excellence, and it's written by, uh, I believe it's some partners from McKinsey that looks at how CEOs uh, in the past have tackled strategy within their companies. Um, from a marketing geek perspective, the uh, Bennett and Field long and short of it, and uh, Byron Sharp, How Brands Grow, are, um, I'd say, to a book and an academic study that is evolving as we sit here on the stage. But um, I like the methodology and the measurement behind marketing on those two. 
Patrick, are you going book or podcast? Why don't I go podcast? Um, it's not necessarily a pure strategic, but I really like the HBR, the Harvard Business Review Ideacast. They do really good topics, real variety with really interesting people and delving into kind of from really different lenses. And I think a lot of the topics, they, the way they approach it is, okay, let's take this topic, but how can it be approached to, to different sectors and industries and, and how can you think about it your, yourself within your own realm? So um, that's mine from a, from a strategic perspective. Good stuff. Thank you both for being with us. Max, thank you as well. Please join me in thanking Max, Patrick and Mike.